Why don't we pray as we come to our sermon? Father, thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth we have been able to explore in this series in Acts. And Lord, as we look at this very important part of the story now, we ask that you'll help us to not only understand it, but to understand our time and our world as well as you speak to us by your spirit. Lord, be with us in every way. Uh, be with us energy-wise at this time of day when it's easy to be tired. Help us to focus and to hear you well. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Well, soon after uh, myself and Allison got married, I decided that I would give a thank you gift to my groomsmen. And so to, to uh, show my appreciation, uh, rather than just to buy them a little gift, I decided to do something different, and I booked us all into a barista coffee course. Uh, it was just one of those one-night introductions to using the, the actual cafe uh, machines, you know, the proper machines. So it sounded like a lot of fun for a few guys who were all coffee lovers. And it was interesting. We learned how to make coffee. All good. Uh, but it became clear during the night that the woman running the training thought that her cafe was the bee's knees when it came to coffee. Uh, she talked endlessly about the coffee culture in Italy and how they were trying to capture that same perfection. And it all came to a head when she spoke about how coffee must be made at an exact temperature. One of my friends, who knows that I like my coffee uh, very hot, asked the dreaded question. When we realized afterwards it was a dreaded question. He asked, well, but how do you make it hotter, though? Let's just say that this woman was not happy at all that anyone would ever consider even asking this. Uh, she told us that when people ask for an extra hot coffee, they refuse to make what they see as an imperfect cup. So without telling the customers, they just basically run hot water over the cup handle to give the impression that they've made you a hotter coffee. Uh, they basically, deliberately, play games with people's minds. And this woman had no problem at all with that. Because for her, there's only one way to make coffee. Anything else is an abomination. Everything else is non-traditional. Everything else is non-perfect. Needless to say, I've never gone back to that cafe. <laughs> and they have since closed. I wonder why. Now, this is just a story of someone's silly obsession with what they think is perfect coffee. But this kind of thinking gets a bit more serious when we're talking about the bigger things of life, like religion, doesn't it? Here in today's passage, we have the Jews reacting in a big way now to this growing Christian church. And the Jews say that anything beyond traditional Judaism is an abomination. You just can't change it. There's no other way. Yet these new Christians are saying, but it has to be done differently. So what I would like us to consider this afternoon is why this difference blew up the way that it did. Because, see, this is a real turning point in our history, in the history of the church. Why were these early Christians hated? Why were they persecuted? Why did they actually kill Stephen? What does this mean for the church today? Well, the first reason behind these problems is that the Jews rejected Jesus. This great divide basically happened because of him. We've seen so far in our series that the very early Christian church had been off to a good start. 
Uh, the Christians, they were held in favor. They were respected uh, because of their attitudes, their kindness, the miracles that the apostles were doing, and the number of early believers was quickly growing into the thousands. But as I said, here the story now takes a drastic turn. So let me read a bit of our passage for us again, starting at chapter 6, verse 8, if you're looking along. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. Stephen was a godly man whom the apostles had chosen to help with feeding widows. But there were Jews who didn't like him. So they tried to argue him down. But they found they couldn't hold their own because Stephen was empowered with the Holy Spirit. So what did the Jews do next? Well, they stirred up false accusations and they dragged him before their council, their leaders, the Sanhedrin. Now, we're not told every detail, but obviously Stephen's ministry must have been very clear about Jesus and this new Christian faith. Verses 13 and 14 tell us that the trumped-up charges were because of words about the temple and the law. And as we hear Stephen's story here, I wonder how many echoes we, we hear of the way Jesus was accused. But basically, here's what's happening. People had been happy with Christianity as long as it was a small movement that was charitable and didn't upset their traditions. But now they're realizing that follow Jesus means to rethink things. It means change. And so we see the great fear of the Jewish people at the end of verse 14. They're concerned that the followers of Jesus, or really Jesus himself, will change the customs Moses handed down to them. See, the problem is that they don't want Christ. Through this growing Christianity and through people like Stephen who now have become a public figure, the Jews, they're faced with a choice. Their comfortable, yet often empty, religious system or a relationship with Jesus. You can't have both. And we see by their words and actions what they chose. They hated Stephen because they hated his Lord. And then we come to verse 15. It's a very interesting verse. Uh, I wonder if this one stood out for you when you listened to the reading. Let me read that again. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, why would this little phrase be in there as we read this story? Well, it's actually a reference back to Moses, right back to the traditions of these Jewish people. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, after he had met with God and God gave him the law, his face was so radiant that people couldn't even look at him. I generally try to be careful about how much uh, time that I have in the sun. And if you haven't figured it out yet, uh, I never have a bronzed look 
I have never had a suntan in my life. My story is I go various shades of pink, and then I go back to white. It's a lost cause, so why even try? Okay, so it's wide-brimmed hats and sunblock for me. Uh, but back during my very early years or days in Australia, I once went to a beach with a friend. Now, I had never been to this particular beach before, so I didn't know to expect that it didn't have very much shade. And I realized a bit too late that I had let myself have too much sun. Well, the next day, I was glowing bright pinkish red, and I was very sunburnt. In fact, I was so bright red and, and pink that I had just two strips of white eyebrows just peeking out here. Uh, and needless to say, I learned a bit of a lesson that day. Stephen had been exposed to something bright and glorious as well. But more than the sun and the sky, he had been exposed to the very glory of God. And I think this little reference to Moses here is saying something else as well. Through Christ, Stephen was proclaiming and living God's ways properly. He had been living what really had been expected of God's people way back when they first received the law at the time of Moses. His face like an angel shows that he's been approved by God in what he's doing and saying. Despite all the religion around him, despite him being brought before the religious leaders, he's the one holding out the right faith. But as we read this story, we read about what Stephen is facing here. We have to ask if we are real about persecution and hardship for the name of Christ. Because even today, lots of people are willing to tolerate Christianity on some level until it makes a claim on them. The story actually hasn't really changed. The, the context of this and the context of our world now is actually not that far apart. People are happy with Christianity until it challenges them or until it makes them uncomfortable. Jesus himself tells us in John 15:18, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. So let's say it as it is. The Bible never promises easy Christianity. The world at its core hates Jesus. That's the real problem. And this is going to lead to hardship for us too. Now we might not face exactly the same things as Stephen in this story, but the truth is, do you know that some people in today's world still do? Do you know that people are dying because they have the name of Jesus on their lips in 2018? It is still happening. People are dying for their faith. And here in Australia, and this is definitely an understatement as I say it, but there is a growing dislike of Christianity. I mean, isn't it now okay to publicly say that Christians are just bigots uh, for what they believe? I mean, you, you couldn't say that publicly 20 years ago. That never worked. Even this past week or so with that uproar in the media about the Anglican Church talking about protection of religious freedoms. It just shows that many people are much less positive towards our faith. But this sort of thing can be subtle as well. Being made to feel a bit silly because you go to church or you read the Bible. Feeling a bit left out because people hold all kinds of events on a Sunday and you're the one who has to choose. Sometimes they don't quite fit in at work or maybe even with some of our family gatherings because we don't actually share the same jokes to talk about the same kind of weekend. Or maybe you have faced stronger things. Maybe you know what it's like to have snide remarks or 
insults because of your faith. So we need to realize what following Jesus means. Are we willing, in the strength of the Spirit, to stand up for him like Stephen does here? Let me say it very clearly for us. If we truly follow Jesus, we will be hated on some level. That's part of the story of the church. And neither Epping Presbyterian as a whole or us individually are immune from that. That has been, that's how it always has been. And in fact, the general peace towards Christianity we've known in Australia until recently, that's just a blip on the radar of Christendom. So the first reason for this great division, this big change in church history, is a rejection of Jesus and all things Jesus. That's really at the core of what's happening here. These people want status quo. They don't want a savior. They want Moses. They want the temple. They want the law. They want their traditions. And they want them only in the ways they've ever known them. And so this brings us to our other answer today. This division happened because the Jews were blinded by the gods they had made. They were blinded by the gods they had made. Chapter 7 begins with the high priest asking Stephen if the charges against him are true. And the rest of that chapter are his words of defense. He makes it very clear that the Jews have a distorted view of the temple and they have a distorted view of the law. So thinking about the temple first, the Jews saw it as the place where you find God. For them, it was especially holy. And to say anything about it, anything challenging about it, well, that was blasphemy. So Stephen gave them a history lesson. And I'll basically sum up chapter 7 as we explore this point. Look at verse 2 with me, please. To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. He's reminding them that God was active in the life of their forefather Abraham even before there was a temple. In verse 9, he reminds them that their forefathers sold Joseph into slavery in Egypt. God was with him there. He was with their whole nation when it later became enslaved. And Stephen goes on to say that even when the time came to build the actual temple, God still didn't need a home. Stephen's point is that they have made the temple an end in itself. They've made a god out of it. They've missed the big picture that the temple was meant to be a good gift from God that ultimately pointed to Jesus, the true temple. See, Jesus is the location of God. He's where God can be found. So things have changed with Christianity. You can imagine how challenging these words would have been for the original hearers. And it was the same for the law as well. The instruction, the words from God that the Jews held dear. Stephen reminds them that when Moses was literally receiving the law from God on Sinai, what were the people doing? They were busy worshipping a golden calf. And they didn't want to listen to Moses, so much for being people of the law. I believe Stephen's goal here was to show their hypocrisy. He's saying to them, you're all worked up about your traditions, about the way I'm referring to the truth of God through Jesus, but you've never obeyed the law. Yet this Jesus you hate, he's the only one who's ever kept it perfectly. He came to fulfill it. 
If you want to understand the law, if you want to have some ability to keep it, you need him. You need Jesus Christ. But the Jews were blinded by their sacred views. In their zeal, they missed the whole point that the law and the temple point to Christ and are fulfilled in him. So Stephen makes a scathing summary of them in verses 51 to 53. He says, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. And so in anger, the Jews dragged Stephen out of the city and they stoned him to death. It's a very graphic image of wanting to hold on to your traditions and your gods, no matter the cost. One of my pet peeves is a mixture of trains and headphones. Now, don't get me wrong, I use the trains a lot, and I love music, and yes, I listen to them on headphones, I even have a Spotify premium account, no problem at all. The problem is when they come together. I struggle with people who just mope along the train platform while listening to their blaring headphones. You know, the kind of people, that they're lost in their own little world, they're in this music bubble, and they're shuffling along, they're barely even lifting their feet, they're going along at a snail's pace, and they're doing it during peak hour when everyone else is trying to get through and make their way to the next train. I tend to get a bit frustrated, as you can tell, by their lack of spatial awareness, because often these are people have no idea of what's going on around them. They just blocked out the whole rest of the world. Verse 57 here, if you're looking along, says this sort of thing, but in a, in a very serious way. The Jews plug up their ears as Stephen speaks of seeing the Son of Man in the heavens. They just don't want to hear any truth about God. They don't want any other voice but their own and their traditions. They want to mope on through while looking down at their feet and not look up at God. They want a God of their own design. The temple, the law, our traditions, these are the only things we want. None of this Jesus nonsense, thank you very much. I'm just blocking all of that out. But, you know, we have to be careful of this as well. It's actually easy to get locked into religious things and miss the true message of Jesus, that he came to die and rise so we have new and eternal life. Is there anything in your religious tradition or your church understanding that maybe you have made a bit too big? It's when we make things more important than him. We have to be careful of when our, even our very good church structures, even when our theology, a right theology, can become a starting point and get in the way of Jesus. Sadly, I've even seen that happen with ministers who put an emphasis there first and Jesus second. And even I have to be careful on how I do my part in guiding this church forward. It just can't be my ideas or my personal agenda ever as more important than Christ and his word and his gospel. But see, as human beings, we so easily make gods out of the good things that God gives us. Just like the Jews here. We're not immune to that. None of us are. I'm not. 
And it goes beyond religious things too. We can make idols out of anything, out of health and beauty and money and family, sex and job and houses, ideas, passions, reputation. What do we elevate higher than him? That's the question we need to ask. God has revealed his truth in Jesus. But like the Jews, we're tempted sometimes to put him down lower. The great news, however, as we hear this kind of thing, as we hear this passage, is we see that Jesus, though, he is not just a religious idea or a religious system that this new church is now pushing. In a sense, they're not coming in with an alternative religion. They're coming with a risen and living Lord. In verse 55, we see that Jesus is standing at the right hand of God, presumably to welcome home the very first Christian who died for his name. That's what Stephen sees as his life is poured out. But of course, Jesus is going to gladly welcome home every single one of his people. And so any persecution or hardship that we're going to face in this life, especially that anything that we face because of our faith, it's going to one day pale next to the glory of knowing Christ face to face as he welcomes us home. Let me urge you, please, to reread this little section of this, these chapters this coming week, the part about how Stephen dies, and prayerfully think through how he faces his own death, because he knows it means being with his Lord. And on top of this, if this is who Jesus is, if he is the risen and living Lord of his church, as Acts will keep telling us every single week, we know then that he is journeying with us in this changing landscape in Australia. He is journeying with his people and his church in whatever will come our way. And so finally, I would like to end by looking forward. And again, we come back to the sovereignty of God over his church. Back in chapter 1, verse 8, we read that it was Jesus' plan for his gospel message to go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And here with Stephen's death, persecution broke out, and what happened? The church spread. Further, the Jews and the Christians here now, this is a turning point. They're no longer on the same page because not everybody wanted to embrace Jesus. Chapter 8, verse 1 says, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Even in this tragic story of the death of a brother in Christ, we see hope, and we see life in Jesus. God powerfully uses Stephen's death for his good purposes. The persecutions and hardships around us can be very real and tragic as well, but they're never beyond God's great love, they're never beyond his great plans for his church. An early figure in church history, Tertullian, he wrote these very true words, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you for the story of Stephen, and we thank you that as we read it, we see and can make sense out of the world around us as well. Father, we ask that we will leave this church today not under any illusions of how Christianity fits into this world. Lord, the world is not friendly towards Christianity because it hates Jesus. And so, Lord, in our love for him, and his love for us. Help us to be real about that, 
as we reach out into a world that doesn't want to embrace him and into a world that's going to make it harder and harder to be a Christian. Will we pray for us in, as we move into the future in these uncertain times in Australia and as everything seems to point to things becoming even more difficult for the church and for believers, we ask that you will strengthen us as you strengthen Stephen here. And Lord, help us to know that if the world hates us, it's because it hated Jesus first. But keep us strong in his name. Keep us looking to his glory. Help us not to make any other gods and put them above him, but to make our risen and living Savior the central point of all that we do and all that our church stands for. Lord, give us great strength to live properly for you. Empower your church. And thank you that in all that we face, the message will go forward and your purposes will unfold. We pray for each other in these things. In Jesus' name, amen.